Father, we, uh, we want to just stop a second. We've prayed a lot and sang a lot, and the theme today is mercy. Mercy teaches that everything that we have, the reason we can exist is because you're holding back. You're patient with us. You're kind. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Mercy has the idea that you're waiting patiently for us to come to you and turn to you. In fact, God, I just pray that because we're going to open up your scriptures, I pray everybody in here, Lord, will realize that the reason we're even breathing is because of your mercy. The reason we can even come here and sit is because you're patient. And Lord, that's hard for us to really swallow because we think we deserve an awful lot. And uh, we just need your perspective on things. So I'm asking God, first of all, to make your scriptures very clear. Very, very clear. But I also pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts the way things really are. That we are living and hiding, being protected because you're merciful. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you could open up to Luke 13, Luke chapter 13, Pastor Ken uh, handled Luke 12 last week, and I, I really consider Ken a great gift to this church. He did a great job last week, and so we're continuing on Luke 13. I also want to thank uh, Bill and Kim Ferguson for they ran a marriage conference this past weekend, and we had about 50 people in attendance, and it's just, it's great to be at a church that values Things like the sanctity of life and specifically the sanctity of marriage and just wanting to work at it and do better at it so Christ will be glorified. I like to read a lot of different things on marriage because I counsel every once in a while. And about two weeks ago I read this story. It's by C.S. Lewis. And as I was reading it, it's a, I think it's a great way to lead us into Luke 13 because it's going to deal with something that I think is hidden in our hearts that we don't realize. But this story kind of brings it out. You'll understand what I mean. And it's a case study. I'm going to call it a case study. It was, believe it or not, written in 1963 by C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. Something recently has happened in my own neighborhood. Mr. A had deserted Mrs. A and got his divorce in order to marry Mrs. B, who likewise got her divorce, in order to marry Mr. A. So here's kind of the story. Mr. A, on the left, divorced Mrs. A so he could marry Mrs. B, who divorced Mr. B. Pretty, pretty simple. But listen to what he says. If they continued to be in love, well, they were certainly no doubt that Mr. A and Mrs. B were very much in love with one another. If they continued to be in love, and if nothing went wrong with their health or their income, they might reasonably expect to be very happy. It was equally clear that they were not happy with their old partners. Mrs. B had adored her husband at the outset, but when he got smashed up in the war, it was thought he had lost his virility and it was known that he had lost his job. Life with him was no longer what Mrs. B had bargained for. Poor Mrs. A 
she had lost her looks in all her liveliness. It might be true, as some said, that she consumed herself by bearing his children and nursing him through the long illness that overshadowed their earlier married life. You mustn't, by the way, imagine that Mr. A was the sort of man who nonchalantly threw a wife away. Like the peel of an orange, he sucked dry. Her suicide was a terrible shock to him. We all knew this, for he told us himself, and here's what he said. But what could I do? A man has a right to happiness. What could I do? Don't I deserve to be happy, in other words? I had to take my chance at happiness when it came. So C.S. Lewis continues, and he says, I went away thinking about the concept of a right to happiness. At first, this sounds to me as odd as a right to good luck. For I believe, whatever one school of moralists may say, that we depend for a very great deal of our happiness or our misery on circumstances outside of human control. A right to happiness doesn't, for me, make much more sense than a right to be six feet tall or to have a millionaire for your father or to get good weather whenever you want to have a picnic. Does a man, does a woman, have a right to happiness? It's funny, while I was writing this in a coffee shop, I often go to coffee shops to write my sermons. I try to hide away, and I won't tell you where I was, so you don't come there for free counseling. I was writing my sermon, and this is, this is no lie. This is Friday. A sharp-dressed man walked up to the counter, and apparently the lady knew him. The lady behind the counter knew him. She noticed how he lost a lot of weight and looked great. And so she asked him, she said, what's your secret? And he said, smiling back to her, divorce. I think he believes that he has a right to happiness. Does a person have a right to be six feet tall? Does a person have a right to have fair weather every time I have a picnic? Do we deserve to have elections even go our way? What can we expect? What do we, what do we deserve, honestly? Today we're going to read, I think, an incredibly shocking passage in Luke. Jesus is going to have a, just a simple discussion with his disciples. And if you listen to what he said, it's going to turn reality on its head. I can remember the first time I heard this preached. I read it a number of times, and I really had no idea in my own reading what it was talking about until this guy kind of helped me understand what was going on. And I got to tell you, it shocked me. I didn't like what I had to hear because I had a misconception the way I lived my life. I used to see life and the good life as something that I was owed. I really believed it. I deserved to have a good life. After reading this, I realized the only reason I have any semblance of a good life is because I'm hiding under the mercy of God. It's sheltering me like an umbrella from rain. It's pretty shocking. So we're going to read through this, and we're going to slowly work through it, because my hope, is if you can grasp this, it will change your life. It just will. 
Here's what it says, Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. This is, this is all about mercy and what it means to live hidden underneath God's mercy. So what's going on? Actually, if we go to the verse chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. There's some kind of crisis, there's some situation, life event, that's going on in the life of the disciples and Jesus. Actually, what's interesting about crises in life, they have a way of exposing our hidden perceptions, what we really believe inside. So in this case, imagine, here's basically the scenario. Imagine Jesus and his disciples are walking down the street to Jerusalem. And there on the corner was one of those newspaper dispensers, you know, the kind you lift up put some money in, lift up, and read it. So imagine uh, you have Peter. He's carrying around a shekel, puts a shekel in the newspaper dispenser. Hot off the press comes the front page news. And so you can imagine Peter reading it to John, his buddy. And he'd say this, John, look at the front page. It says, Massacre at the Temple Mount. Apparently some Jewish Gentiles went to offer some animals at the temple, and while they were offering their sacrifice, Pilate had them murdered and their blood mingled. How horrible! Boy, I'll bet you they must have done something wrong for God to allow this to happen to them. Jesus probably overheard them. That's apparently what's happening here in Luke 13 and can imagine him piping in. So do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners because they were killed in this way? And then he probably went to the second page news. Apparently a giant tower, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, everything's built out of stone, and imagine a giant tower all of a sudden fell, and while it fell, it landed and killed 18 pedestrians. And so Jesus said, so do you think these people who died, these, in a sense, innocent pedestrians, were they worse, worse offenders than everybody else living in Jerusalem? So he's taking this present crisis and he's going to teach a powerful lesson it's sort of like this you can look at it like this remember last june there was a shooting at an orlando gay bar where 49 people were killed a guy just decided to unload on 49 people in the gay bar do you think those people that died were worse than you 
Because I'm telling you, a lot of people did. This question can be asked about any major disaster. Do you think the Titanic sunk because of the greed and arrogance of the first-class passengers? Do you think Hitler arose because the Germans, as a nation, were more depraved than, let's say, the British and the French? Are hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, and famines homing missiles, homing devices sent by God to punish point blank a specific group of wicked people? Is that what disasters are? Were the elections an indicator of God's favor? We tend to put narratives to things we have nothing, no idea about what's going on. So what Jesus is going to address is what I'm going to call a tacit understanding or a tacit worldview. Tacit it's a weird word. Tacit means it's, a, it's the way we see things without really realizing it. It's never put out in the open. We never declare it, but it's down in there. It's implied. Tacit means it's a mindset that's been molded into us ever since birth. It's just the way people think. And Jesus is going to basically deal with a, a tacit worldview that is blinding us, I think, to him. And here is how I would put it. This is, I'm going to put it in a phrase. This is our tacit understanding. Based on this and some of the other examples, disasters, you could even say failures, sufferings, disasters are divinely directed at those who deserve it. So if a disaster happens, you probably deserved it. Probably deserved it. So misery, failure, destruction... To a lot of people, that's a sure sign of God's direct displeasure. And I think when things happen, we always, we just wonder, did I do something wrong to deserve this? It's tacit. Job dealt with this. If you remember the Old Testament story of Job. Job was this guy whose kids all died from a storm. It's terrible. Job was also given this horrible ailment where he had scabs all over his body and he'd take clay shards and scrape them because they were hurting so bad. So he had all these, these counselors come by and they were trying to assess why was Job so miserable. And there was one, his name was Eliphaz in Job 4, 7 through 9. Here's what he says. He's talking to Job. He goes, Job, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they're going to reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So what he's saying, human beings, when things go wrong, they assume it's probably because you did something wrong, because there's two assumptions underneath, underneath our tacit understanding. Many of you have, I believe you carry this. It's kind of like a germ. We believe, we won't say it, but we believe. That basically we are born innocent. We're good people. We're born without blemish. We are really white as the driven snow. And because of that, the second thing we believe, we deserve good treatment. Blue skies should always be shining for every picnic. Happy days should be the norm for my life, 
and all my wants must be supplied by God, my parents, and my government. The Declaration of Independence declares we have a right to life, liberty, and happiness, right? No, Chris, it's the pursuit of happiness. I think we dropped that pursuit out now. It's life, liberty, and happiness. In fact, uh, Time Magazine did a great article about four years ago on is happiness a right? And if it is, they say, I don't think it's going so well. Here's how the article wrote. Since 1972, only about one-third of Americans have described themselves as very happy. It's by the National Science Foundation. In 2004, the share of Americans who identify themselves as optimists, people who see things on the positive side, has plummeted from 79% to 50%. According to a new time poll, 20% of us will suffer from a mood disorder at some point in our lifetime, more than 30% from an anxiety disorder. By the time we're 18, 11% of us will have been diagnosed with depression. The gap between our optimistic expectations and a reality that a significant portion of the population is of late cranky and dissatisfied may be what has spawned a vast happiness industry. This article says there's an industry just about happiness. We tap into this industry in a lot of ways. We take pills. Time Magazine found that 25% of American women and 5% of American men say they are taking antidepressants. We tap into it with food. 48% of women and 44% of men admit to eating to improve their mood, contributing, of course, to the U.S. obesity epidemic. Self-improvement products and services, including books, audiobooks, seminars, self-improvement. It's a $10 billion a year industry, equal to Hollywood's industry. And then we have... Wise motivational speakers, 5,000 of them in the U.S. alone, earning a collective $1 billion a year just to motivate people to be good. The pursuit of happiness, Time writes, it once was an ideal, has now become big business because we believe it's our right. In fact, according to the 2012 World Happiness Report, the U.S. ranks 23rd on a 50-county happiness index. We are behind Iceland, New Zealand, Denmark, Singapore, Malaysia, Tunisia, and even Vietnam. We aren't happy. So what's going on? Don't we deserve better than this? We do, don't we? This is where Jesus steps in. He goes, in verse 3 and 5, no, no, you don't. This is harsh. I can almost guarantee as we look at what Jesus says, you won't like it. I hate it. But you have to listen to it. He's going to express the real perspective with one phrase. Look at verse 3. Right after he says, do you think these are worse Galileans? In other words, do you think they deserved to be punished and you don't? And he basically says, no. And then here's the phrase. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says the same thing in verse 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is a harsh and brash statement. It's brash in a sense that its scope is all. And it's harsh in a sense that it's severe. It says you'll perish. 
So we need to deal with both of these statements. So this, first of all, is saying this. The word all means everybody is born into a state of guilt before God. Psalm 51.5, David said, I was sinful at birth. And go to John 8. John 8.24, it's very clear. John 8.24, these are the words of Jesus. What's, what's strange about Jesus is, you know, you think Jesus will take away fear. He actually is kind of ramping up anxiety here, saying, you really are in bad shape. John 8.24. It's a very simple statement. It says, I told you, and these are the words of Christ, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Romans 5, 12 to 13 traces our state of condemnation from Adam to us. The idea is because Adam sinned, I was included with him. It's called federal headship of Adam. You can look at it like this. In the garden, when Adam sinned, he went to bat for all of humanity, and he struck out. And I receive that. I receive his judgment. This is the biblical diagnosis. And then the second statement is perish means that wrath, which is retribution, red-hot anger of God, is deserved. I don't think we let this really sink in I, I, in our everyday living. I don't. i got to be honest. You can ask it like this. Do any of us do any of us deserve to have every picnic blue skied? Do um, do we deserve good treatment by every coach, teacher and cop? Do we deserve to be in a country that's free? Do we deserve to have our candidate win? Do we deserve good health? As I ask this, you're probably not even letting, we just don't let this sink in because we're used to living. We are used to living on the well-mown fields of grass, which I call grace. We're used to it. Like, take a deep breath right now. That is a gift. You, don't, you aren't owed that. You are not owed that. That was a gift. Your beating heart right now, the reason you're able to listen to me is because Jesus holds all things together. I'll, here, I'll give you an illustration of this. I'll never forget this, Derek. I, you weren't here, but when I was first started as youth pastor, we had, I decided to go, you know, our nice shining blue gym in the old church. Beautiful gem of a gym over there. I decided to get to meet some of the neighborhood kids. And so I, from after school till 5 o'clock, I opened up the gym for just basically whatever they want to do, basketball, dodgeball. It was just an open gym so I could get to know the neighborhood kids. And I did it Tuesday, Thursdays. And there was about 20 that would come in there regularly, and it was, it was all right. It was a good time. And sometimes I would just study while they play basketball or dodgeball or volleyball. And one day, I was sitting in the kitchen doing some studying, and a kid came into the kitchen and said, 
Can you also open this, open this up on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays too? It's a lot of fun. And I said no because I got work to do. And he looked at me and he goes, you're a jerk. Don't we say that to God every single day of our lives? He gives us everything. He gives us everything. And when one thing doesn't go our way, we complain. God's grace is never enough for the ungrateful. The only reason you are living right now, this very moment, is because of mercy. You're being kept alive by it. That's what this uh, parable is about, Luke 13, 6 to 9. Take a look at it. This is a very simple parable, but if you've got to let it sink in because it is powerful, <laughs> oh my goodness. Look at what it says. And he told this parable, and it's related to what just happened. It's about mercy. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He bought this tree, planted it in his ground, so it could produce figs. Pretty simple. It's a fruit tree. He came seeking fruit on it, and he didn't find any. So he said to the vine dresser, which is the gardener, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I don't find any. What is he saying about the tree? It is not fulfilling the purpose for which I planted it in that ground. It's a waste. That's why he says, cut it down. Why should, this statement, why should it use up the ground? This is a, a fig is usually in reference to the nation Israel, but it can also be in reference to individual lives. If you apply this to your life, what he's saying, if you are living a life that doesn't bear any fruit and bring glory to God, why should he let you live and suck off of his resources if you aren't producing anything? It's what he's saying. Why should I let it use up the ground? Oh, my goodness, that's a powerful statement. And he answered him, sir, and this is the heart of God, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if we understand that, when you, we smell manure in the air all the time, we know that's fertilizer. If you ever drive by those big trucks that kind of, Go back and forth. Sparta Avenue, you think it's going to splash all that manure on your front windshield so you drive. Anyhow, that's what he's talking about. It's fertilizer. And then in verse 9, then, then, if it should bear fruit next year, good, well and good. But if not, cut it down. So there's three principles we can learn about grace from this. And they're very important. First of all, God exercises patience with us even though he would be justified in punishing us. So you have a fig tree. It's meant to grow figs. And for three years, it doesn't grow anything. He could plant something else there. It's good soil. It's his right. But he exercises patience. To me, the epitome of patience, honestly, the I think you've got to let this sink in. This is the most profound statement. Jesus is being whipped. 
He's being spit on. He's being humiliated. He's being ridiculed. And he's stripped naked, and they gamble his clothes. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think he says that about me every day. Father, Chris is... Chris does stupid things. He says stupid things. Give him another chance. How many of you just get drunk and he sees it and he doesn't do anything? And Jesus says, just forgive them. Forgive the divisiveness, the rancor, the hatred we have towards fellow Americans. It's just wrong. We don't know what we do. Like the man who decided to leave the fig tree alone for the moment, God right now is holding his hand back on you. Did the man in the story have the right to cut the tree down? Absolutely. For three years, it produced nothing. How about you? How many years have you produced nothing? I look at it like this. There's a moment, basically theologians discuss this time, when does the human consciousness awake. And majority of theologians call that the basically the age of accountability. Age of accountability is this idea when a human being becomes spiritually sensitive. And the way you can tell you're spiritually sensitive, you ask the question, why am I on this earth? What is my purpose? Who am I? The moment that happens, the moment you first ask that is very important because the majority of people just snuff it out and ignore it and say it doesn't matter, and they become a fig tree that produces no fruit. But you, Jesus starts counting. Oh, year one, look at they're not, they're ignoring me. Year two, another year goes by. Year three. How many years have you been unfruitful? Second thing we can say is this. God's goal, according to this parable, God's goal for us is to repent, is to turn back towards him. And he, in his patience, that's his purpose. Repentance is, I was going this way, and now I realize it, and I go this way. In this story, a man is told to put manure around the tree, and in spiritual terms, what this is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to condemn us of sin, to say, stop it to tell us about judgment, saying it's going to catch up with you, but also to bring you light. And when light happens, three things wake up in your mind. Number one, you start to see that the axe is getting close to the root of the tree. He's about to chop me down, and I deserve it. Because I'm not producing. You can say, look at your life. Are you enjoying the blue skies and the kind treatment of God? Have you gone out in the last maybe week or two weeks and raked the leaves and the cool breeze comes off and the sun comes down and you're like, this is beautiful. Oh, I love the fall. But then do you snub your fist at God? Or are you grateful? And if you're not grateful, God calls this provoking him to more wrath because everything you have is a gift. Second thing about repentance is after I realize the axe is at the root of the tree, I wake up and I turn to him. I turn from my barrenness to Christ's salvation. I turn from my wickedness 
to his righteousness. And then the third thing is I start living for him. I start producing fruit. I allow the Spirit of God to work in me. I'll tell you, I'll just be honest with you. Most of you hear my words, but deep in your core, I'm just telling you, deep in your core, you still think you deserve grace. It's in us. I have done this a long time, and when people are apathetic and cynical, it's a sign you think you deserve things. When, you, when criticism is all you levy, it's a sign you actually believe you deserve the breath you're taking right now. Like, I think we really believe this. It's in us. It's in me that happiness is deserved. It's hard to get rid of. And if that's in you, Here's the third one. You have to listen to this. This is the harshest one. God's stay of judgment, that means his patience, is temporary. Listen to verse 9. Just listen to verse 9. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. That's, that's what God wants. A fruitful human being. A repentance. But what if not? Cut it down. We assume grace and mercy is unending, but it's not. I want you to go to Isaiah 26. This is a... Uh, Isaiah is a book. I, I like to say Isaiah is like a mine. There's jewels in it, but you gotta. it takes time to mine out the jewels, and sometimes you'll get these jewels that just shimmer. Remember this one. I remember reading this, and it stopped me dead, and it's one of those that sticks with you. It's Isaiah 26, and I want you to listen to it. Does anybody have the NIV? I like how the NIV writes it. Anybody right down there? Do you have an NIV? Can I steal your Bible? Ooh, I'll not steal. That's against the Ten Commandments. But listen how the, I'll read it in, a, I'll read it in the ESV, and then I'll read the NIV. The ESV says, If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Okay, so this is, I, I think the NIV puts it in a vernacular I, I kind of understand a little better. Though grace is shown to the wicked. Though grace is shown to the wicked. That means God's unmerited favor is poured out to the wicked. Take a breath again. <sighs> That's grace. They do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. And as a result, verse 11. Verse 11 is the result. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they don't see it. Meaning, when a person is so self-indulged, thinking grace is theirs and theirs, they deserve it, God's wrath is getting ready, but they don't see it because they're so self-absorbed. That's terrifying. Thank you. So you could put it like this, as 2 Peter 3 says. He says, the way you can tell the judgment of God is coming is, is scoffers will scoff. The way you can tell judgment's close is scoffers will scoff. Scoffing is when you say judgment's coming 
and a scoffer will say, I've heard that for years. It's not coming. I'm still getting away with it. Scoffers will scoff. I, have, I, I just have to be honest with you when you think about this statement that God's stay of judgment is temporary. I think it's also a sign to time moves on, his, his will moves on, and it's faster than you think. I never thought the day of my daughter's wedding would ever arrive. I, I never, it never occurred to me. Truthfully, I never thought about it. And all of a sudden, this guy named Pedro is hanging around my house an awful lot. Uh, what, how did that happen? And then I'm walking up this aisle on a suit, in a suit. I told Mark Lindsley I didn't think I'd ever have gray hair like he did, and I noticed a couple the other day. It sneaks up on you. Well, i got to be honest with you, I never thought I'd open up WZZM 13 and Isaiah Slater's dead. Derek, I just saw him two weeks ago in the church. Like, wasn't he kind of like one of those figures that he's, he's just there? He's not going to be there. I don't know, mercy. Mercy is amazing, but don't take it for granted. I want to end on uh, this passage. Go to Romans 2, and I want Romans 2 to just speak to you, and then I'll close with a story. Romans chapter 2. This is addressed to people that say they're good, but they're in their goodness, they don't need God. It's Romans 2, uh, 4 and 5. It says, Do you presume, it's like the idea of expect, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you presume that this grace that you're daily living in is deserved? And then it says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath when the day of God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's, it's coming. I, uh, oh, I can remember a long time ago, my mom liked to give me books. and She, uh, she gave me this book, and you'll know this story, but, but it's not, the book is amazing. It's called Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I know you know the story of Tarzan, but you probably know the Disney's Phil Collins-ish, wimpy-ish story. Or, you know, some of the other Tarzan stories are Johnny Weissmiller, who was supposed to be ripped, and he's it's that old-fashioned body that was nothing. Anyhow, you got to read the book. The book is amazing. I saw it last week, and I picked it up again. And I, had, I wasn't even thinking of Luke 13. But in the... Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs was an Englishman he wrote it in the 1800s, and when he wrote it, it was, he was very good at description. It's also very violent, Derek, you'd like it, a lot of killing. It's a good book. But the idea of Tarzan, which you know, Tarzan was this English gentleman 
whose parents were shipwrecked off the coast of Africa. They died, but what happened was a gorilla, a family of gorillas, the mother gorilla lost her infant, was bereaved, and saw the baby Tarzan and took that baby to be her own and raised Tarzan as an ape. And so the idea of the story is Tarzan has this, this brilliance of a man, a civilized man, but he has learned the nature of a, you know, a, one of the most majestic creatures of the forest. So this guy's got the best of both worlds. The mind of a human, but over the years, the sculpted body of a god, the way Edgar Rice Burroughs puts it. What's interesting, the way he describes Tarzan, he said he's six foot one, he had sun blazed, sun bronze skin, said his hair was black. We get these pictures that it's blonde, but it's black like mine. It's not this blonde. It's tough. But anyhow, you read it, and it's interesting the way he describes it. And in, in three, three quarters of the way through the book, this family or this group lands on that same place. And the lady's name's Jane Porter and a couple other people and her dad and his best friend and their English professors of anthropology. And they, they kind of talk like that, you know, and they're talking and talking and talking. And they get kind of lost in the jungle. And they keep talking and they realize, they don't realize they're in immense danger. And Tarzan's watching them from the trees. And he sa it says in a book that he likes their countenance. They look like interesting people. And he said, wow, that Jane is beautiful. And, but he's noticing these Englishmen, they babble, they're babbling, you know, how, how old, what do you think is a beautiful uh, tree? Oh, it's probably 1,800 years old, you know, and as they're walking in, they don't realize dangers around them everywhere. And Tarzan's like, what's wrong with these guys? He's, a, he's above in a tree, and he just sees them walking ignorantly down the path, and a wild boar starts coming. He goes, doesn't he hear them? That boar is going to gorge them. And all of a sudden, he's like, i, I got to save them. Jumps out of the tree, takes a knife, slits his throat, blood comes everywhere, Derek, good book. Anyhow, the boar dies, and these Englishmen have no idea. They were just rescued. It says they're walking a little bit longer, and it says this black panther is coming out of, the, out of this just foliage, and Tarzan's like, don't they see his tail flashing? And so he's like, man, i got to save him again. So he takes this rope that was around his waist, puts a noose on it, grabs that panther and yanks him up and ties him in a tree, and the panther's up there dangling in a tree, and he's still, English gentlemen are still talking like this. They have no idea that they just got rescued. And then he says they got to the beach, and at the beach there's this giant tigress that's in the grass that's crouching and slowly getting ready to just mangle these two English gentlemen. And Tarzan's like, oh, i got to save him again. So he reaches down, grabs him by the neck, pulls them up and puts them on a tree branch, and they're like, jolly, how did I get up here? You know, like that, and they say they look around, and there's Tarzan sitting in the tree like this, you know, leaning back, and they're like, I think that's the gentleman that just saved our lives. Don't we do that with Jesus every single day? We are ignorant that we are saved every single day from some of the worst things and we fail to realize it's Christ who keeps you alive every day. Later on in that book, Jane is worried again, and this gorilla sees that Tarzan kind of likes it, and it's his arch enemy, and he goes and he grabs Jane by the arm and pulls her a day into the jungle. Tarzan didn't realize it until a few hours later, so he hunts this gorilla down. It's a massive gorilla. And they come to a clearing, 
And Tarzan jumps out of the tree and this gorilla sees him. And it's his nemesis. He throws Jane to the side and basically beats his chest saying, she's mine. And Tarzan basically says, come on. And that gorilla's come, it says it has fangs. That gorilla goes after Tarzan. Tarzan reaches around its back, jumps on its back and slices its neck and starts plunging a knife into his heart because he wants her. Jesus went to the cross, was plunging against Satan and sin again and again and again because he wants you. Mercy's a sign of love. He wants you. But we are so selfish. We, are, we think life is just me. We ignore every day. His mercies are new every morning. 